Yeah, this reminder series could go a long time. Um, I don't know when it's going to end, so it's up to the Lord. And uh, C.S. Lewis said, if you're doing your sums wrong, can anybody guess? You'll get the wrong answer. You'll get the wrong answer. On the face of it, it's not the most profound thing anyone ever said, but if you think about it, there's a, a simple genius to it if you apply it to your life. He's saying if your presuppositions are wrong, if your assumptions are incorrect, if your logic is invalid, if your methodology is faulty, if your arithmetic is flawed, what? You'll always what? Get the wrong answer. You'll always get the wrong answer. I dare say some of us in here are doing our sums wrong. Our presuppositions are faulty, our arithmetic is flawed, and we're getting the wrong answer over and over and over and over again. So I'm going to begin. I'm going to make you, uh, you know, participate. No pressure, but uh, I'm going to read two passages to you, and I want you to, to think about which one, uh, either this man or this woman, is closer to getting their sums correct. Okay, so I'm going to read two, two passages to you. The first one's going to be right there where uh, Stuart read, Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 16 uh, through 19. And this is Jesus telling a parable. <clears throat> and he said, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, so, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. If you want to turn over with me to Matthew, pardon me, to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read there just a couple of verses. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And he, this is Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. And calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty." put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Let me ask you, that man, that woman, who's, who's the closest to getting their sums correct? Whose assumptions uh, are apparently flawed? And who's arriving at the wrong answer? Now, here's the really hard question for you. It's not uh, a biblical academic question. Which one of these most closely illustrates how you do your sums. This man or this woman. Now I know every single day you wake up, the world's telling you, this is the wisdom of the world, the world is telling you that you must hoard up money. You must do this. You must stockpile cash and investments. You're supposed to do this. This is the prudent thing. But what I want to challenge you to do tonight with me, if you would, let's see what God has to say about what the world is telling us to do. Listen to what God says to, uh, about the world's logic. 
It's right there. I'm just going to drop down here to Luke chapter 12 and back over to Luke chapter 12. Listen to what God says, verses 20 to 21. You heard what the man said. I'm going to, I'm going to hoard it all up, man. I'm going to build these barns. I'm going to have so many things for, for the rest of my life. Listen to what God says, verse 20, Luke chapter 12. But God said to him, what? Someone tell me. You what? Someone tell me. It doesn't sound too prudent to me. God says, that man is a fool. I know the world tells us something diametrically opposite to that. But we proclaim to be God's people, right? We call ourselves God's people. Let's see what God says. God says that man is a fool. He says, uh, this night, your, uh, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is why I'm preaching this sermon uh, at the beginning of 2010 because in 2010 I want you uh, to purpose to become more rich toward God. Don't waste another year building barns. If you're building barns and hoarding cash, I'm going to challenge you, don't waste another year doing that. 2010, be rich toward God. Don't be a fool in the eyes of God. I don't want to be a fool in the eyes of God. I don't think any of us do. God says, if you're building barns, if you're laying up treasures for yourself on this earth, God says you're a fool. And we're going to look at His promise about that in just a minute. I love this woman in Mark chapter 12. I want to learn how to be like this woman. I am not there, but I'm asking God to teach me how to progressively go there. I love what Piper calls what she does. She throws in her last cent. This is not about doctrine and theology and religious performance. What's this about? It's about dinner. She really believes God's going to show up. God has to be the most real person in her life for her to do this. I love what Piper says about it. John Piper, he says, this is hazardous liberality. Let me ask you, have any of you in here ever exercised hazardous liberality? I love that term. I think that's what Christians are called to do. Hazardous, hazardous liberality. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, if you discover you're doing your sums wrong, what should you do? If you discover you're doing them wrong, what should you do? Someone tell me. Stop. Oh, and start doing them correctly. That's why I'm talking about this tonight. For 2010, I want you to do your sums correctly. I want you to do your sums by God's mathematics. God's arithmetic. That's why I'm talking to you about this. For 2010. There are reasons, beloved, that 16 of Christ's 38 parables speak to money and wealth. There's a reason that Jesus taught more about money and wealth than He taught about heaven and hell combined. Uh, one theologian estimated that 15% of everything Jesus Christ said had to do with money, wealth, and possessions. The Bible contains more than 2,000 references to money and wealth, twice as much uh, as to faith and prayer. So why does God give so much ink to this issue in the Scripture. We all know why, don't we? Because money, wealth, possessions, it can become what? A God. It can become an idol in our hearts and in our lives. Money has an insidious way of enslaving the human heart, does it not? It has an insidious way of doing that. Uh, and this is a huge deal for all of us. There's a, there's a lot at stake here. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24. Listen to what He said. 
No one can serve two masters. You remember. You remember his words. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Impossible. Impossible. Can't do it. God says you can't do it. If I would dare say some of us are in here and we're trying to do that. God says you can't do it. It's impossible. In the God's economy, it's impossible. I love what Piper says here, John Piper. He says, he says uh, laying up treasures for yourself and laying up treasures in, 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 in heaven, they're mutually exclusive. You can't do both. You simply can't do both. This is what God is saying to us. But God's going to let you decide, right? He's going to let you decide what you're going to do with Colossians 3.2. You know, we, we talked about Colossians 3.2. It was either last week or the week before. I forget now. But you know that great text. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. God says, you decide how much treasure you want to lay up in heaven. You decide. Because you're not keeping any of this, right? You don't get to keep anything. You never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You don't get to keep anything. You don't get to keep anything. So I love, I love this challenge here for us. And, and, and you can't do both. And Jesus tells us why. Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. So Christian, friend, where is your heart tonight? Where is it when it comes to money and wealth and, and possessions and success and all that goes with it? Where is your heart that's the issue for us tonight. The bottom line about money, and you've heard me say this before. I haven't preached on money in two years. This is one reason that uh, I think the, the Lord led me to do this. The bottom line about money is, oh, guess what? It's not about your money. What's it about? It's about God. It's not just a little bit about God. It's all about God. The way you think about your money, the way you uh, handle your money, the way you give your money, the way you invest your money, uh, the anxiety you have about money, it's all about God. Every bit of it. Don't try to divorce it off and say it's not about God. I'm just being a prudent uh, uh, parent or a prudent uh, husband. Friends, it's all about God. And I challenge you men in here, particularly, who have families, your family's supposed to see you uh, relying on the Lord and honoring Him and trusting Him. This is a huge deal for our spouses and our children to see that we believe what God has to say and we trust His promises. Your view of your money is a pristine reflection on your view of God. MacArthur is right. John MacArthur, the credibility of your Christianity is at stake in how you handle your money. Do you understand why I'm preaching this sermon at the beginning of 2010? I don't want you to waste 2010 building barns and hoarding up. I want you to magnify the Lord. I want you to invest in the kingdom of God. I want you to become rich toward God. So today the Lord has led me to to preach this, uh, this sermon in the, in the Reminder series to exhort you to do your sums correctly. Don't waste another year doing them by the world's standard of measure. 
So if you're still doing your sums wrong, God is going to tell you tonight in no uncertain terms. Everyone that's in here, God's going to tell you tonight, walk out of here and do your sums in the way God says to do them. Not in the way the world says to do them. We don't live by the ways of the world. We hear what our Father says and we do our best to order our lives uh, in accordance with what He has said to us in His Word. So I'm going to challenge you to throw out any faulty assumptions or uh, flawed presuppositions you may have. If you're still building barns, if you're still laying up earthly treasures, um, if you're still seeking the things of the world, I'm going to call you to repent tonight. I'm going to call you to drive a stake in the ground. And I'm going to call you to say 2010 belongs to God and I'm going to honor Him in my finances like I've never honored Him before. That's my challenge to you tonight as your pastor. Why do, I love this, why do the sons and daughters of the living God not need to build barns? Someone tell me, why do we not need a barn? John's right. Tyler's right. Because our God's God. We don't have to build barns. All we have to do is believe in Him. That's all we have to do. That's all we have to do is believe the Lord. That's all we have to do. God is Jehovah Jireh. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But God expects His children to do their sums correctly. Uh, make no mistake, God is uh, checking your homework. He's going to check your sums. He's, he knows how you're doing your sums. God expects you to do your sums in accordance with uh, his arithmetic, not in accordance with the world's arithmetic. Make no mistake, God is aware of how you are doing your sums. And as I said before, it's all about God. That's the bottom line. It's all about God. How many of you know what a theorem is? Anybody know what a theorem is? Some of the smarter people know. Uh, okay, I had to look it up. So uh, I'm with the majority. I had to look it up. But it's a perfect word for what I'm talking about. A theorem in mathematics, it's a provable statement of truth. It's a proven proposition. It's a principle, an axiom, a comprehensive and fundamental law. Okay? That's a mathematical theorem. That's a mathematical theorem. So um, what is God's proven proposition and His fundamental law? It is, I am Jehovah Jireh. I love my people. I will provide. I will see to it that they are taken care of. Luke chapter 12, you heard it read. What are you worrying about everything for? Who knows what we need? Someone tell me. Our Father knows what we need. The issue is, the issue has to be if you're worried all the time that you simply don't trust Him. That's always the issue. Our Father knows what we need. Believe it, friend, and live like you believe it. That's my challenge. 2010. Live like you believe God knows what you need and that God is faithful and that He is Jehovah Jireh. I love one of the one Hebrew scholar translates that Jehovah Jireh name. He translated as he translates it as I will see to it. Many of you have heard me say this before, but I love that translation. God is saying, I'll see to it. You obey me. I'll take care of everything else. This is what God says. You obey me as radically as you dare. I'll take care of everything else. 
That's what God says to the Christian. Man, we are so free. If you're not free with your money, it's because you've chosen to be bound to it. God has set us free from that. We don't have to be bound to the concerns of the world. We don't have to build barns. I love some other... Some other things that that Jehovah Jireh name means. It means God's paying attention. It means He'll be personally involved. It means He'll give aid and support. It means He will show Himself to the one who believes and obeys. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? It's awesome. I love it. It's, uh, it's beautiful. Luke chapter 12. Listen, friends, if you believe that about God, Luke chapter 12, you heard Stuart read the text. The text is, why are you worrying about everything? Your Father knows what you need. That's the issue. Do you believe it? And do you believe He's faithful? If we, we believe those things, then Luke chapter 12 is altogether reasonable. It's altogether reasonable. In fact, I think it's absolutely necessary that we live Luke chapter 12. That's why I'm talking to you here at the, at the beginning of 2010. I want to challenge you to live Luke chapter 12 in 2010. Not in some theoretical way, but in a practical everyday way. Way. We're going to uh, live Luke chapter 12. He says, what are you anxious for? He says, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. He says, look at the ravens. I feed them. He said, what are you anxious for? He says, look at the lilies. Look how I care for them. Look how I care for them. And then he gets to the heart of the matter there in Luke chapter 12, verse 28. He says, it's all about faith. <laughs> it's like everything else in your life. It's all about faith. He gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't he? He says, stop worrying. Your Father knows what you need. He says, but seek for His kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Friends, are you seeking the kingdom of God? I'm not just talking about on Sunday night. I'm talking about in every sphere of your life. Are you seeking the kingdom of God? God says, I'll take care of everything else. You come after me. I'll take care of everything else. Mark my word, God says, I'll take care of everything else. You come after me. I love that. What a great promise. <laughs> it's an awesome promise. Man, there's so much liberty there. There's just so much liberty there. So why, why does God call His children to be open-handed with their money? Why does God call us to be like that? Someone tell me. Because we're supposed to emulate who? Him. Look how open-handed God is. Nothing is too, nothing costs too much for Him to, to make available for his, his sons and His daughters. Look at uh, the cross. All you have to do is look at the cross. God is a radical giver. He's an omnipotent giver. He's an extravagant giver. He's a lavish giver. That's what you're supposed to be. Everybody in here that calls themselves a Christian, that's what you're supposed to be. We're supposed to be learning this. I haven't arrived. I, I struggle with this all the time. All the time. Lord, am I doing enough? Lord, what should I do? How much more should I do? We'll talk more about that in a minute. We'll talk more about that. But I want to give you some of His promises. Listen to, you know, here's God's theorem. I'm God, and in my economy, giving is what? Someone tell me. Giving is receiving. Listen to these promises from Scripture. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from the first of your wealth and from the first of all your produce so your barns will be filled and, and, uh, plenty, with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Do you see it? 
Giving is receiving. Uh, Malachi 3.10, bring in the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, uh, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you until it overflows. Giving is receiving. You know, right there is where God says, will a man rob God? Well, of course a man will rob God. Most of the human race is robbing God. The shocking thing is how many people in the church are robbing God? Especially when he's making these awesome promises. Awesome promises. Listen, I got one more for you. Scripture, uh, Luke 6, 38. Listen to this. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap, for by your standard of measure it will be measured to you in return. Giving is receiving. This is God's theorem. Are you going to live by it in 2010? I'm challenging you and I'm exhorting you. If you call yourself a Christian tonight, be serious about this in 2010. I mean, be dead serious about it. Because giving in God's economy is, someone tell me, receiving. And I want you to be rich toward God. You know, if I didn't love you, man, I'd preach some little simple thing. Everybody would be happy, be warm and fuzzy. There'd be no conviction, be no challenge. You know, I'd just be, man, I want you, I want you to be pointing at the Bema seat, man. That's what I want. That's what I want for myself. And so every time you come in here, Lord willing, I'm going to try to challenge you. A couple years ago, there was a man in this church, and he crashed into Luke 6.38. And this is when he wrote me a great email. And uh, you've got to love those emails that start with wow, right? It started with wow. He says, wow, we are variable. 638, you know, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over. And he, he, he just crashed in that verse. And he says this, we are variable in God's equation for blessing. We are not just a bunch of empty sacks running around hoping God will drop something in uh, inside. We actually have influence in the blessing supply chain. Okay, I don't have to tell you this guy's in business, right? The blessing supply chain. Hey, I love that. And listen to what he says. He goes on, he says, Jesus says we can choose to what degree God tips his wrist when he pours his blessing out onto us. That's what scripture is saying to us, friends. The issue is, the issue is, do we believe it? I just love, I love the imagery of that of that comment there. And what I want to say to you, this man was an ag aggressive giver in the church and outside the church. This man was serious about being rich toward God. He took God at His word and he acted on it. Friends, I just want you to be rich toward God. I'm not preaching this because the church needs money. That's not why I'm preaching. I'm not preaching this because the church needs money. I'm preaching this because we all want to be rich toward God when we stand at the beam of seat. Friends, don't waste your life building bars. It's a waste. Invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, to invest in the kingdom of God. Of God that man you know he he didn't just throw in some spare money or a little change here a little bit there he'd get emotional and do something here do something there no no he gave like a New Testament Christian is supposed to give systematically and sacrificially that's what we're called to systematic and sacrificial that's what he did he was in on 
the rich toward God thing. He believed it. And I just want to challenge you. Is God being magnified and glorified in your money? How you're giving it? How you worship God with it? Ultimately, that's what it's about. How you worship God with your money. That's really what it's about. How you are worshiping Him with your money. God has always instructed His people to support uh, what He's doing and the work He's doing. I'm going to turn over very quickly to uh, Exodus chapter 35. You can go with me there if you like. You don't have to if you don't want to. I'm just going to hit some high points here. Exodus 35, verse 4 and 5. This is the thing the Lord has commanded, saying, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is, and I love this, this is my sermon, whoever is willing of heart, whoever is willing of heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution into the Lord's house. Whoever is willing. I've given you my, my take on tithing. Tithing uh, is Old Testament law, the New Testament Christian. We are no longer under the Old Testament law. If you believe differently, that's okay. We don't have to be in a, a struggle about that. If you want to bring your tithe here, we'll happily receive your tithe. I just think the Christian is called past tithing. I think we're called the free will giving. I think we are. I think we're called to uh, free will giving. Way past, in my view, the tithe. This is not about... What should I do or what ought I to do? It's about desire. It's about how much I desire to honor my God and trust my God and believe my God and magnify my God. That's really, beloved, that's really what it's about. I was, Tyler and I didn't talk about this. I, I appreciate him. I think he, he had someone read. I think Becky read from... Uh, 2 Corinthians 9. Here, here's New Testament giving. Let me just read it again. Here's New Testament giving right here. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he has purpose in his heart. Listen, friends, if you tithe but you hate it, you should stop. Because that, God is not pleased with that. If you're just checking your religious box, God is not pleased with that. And the problem with tithing is, I've known so many Christians, they get to tithing and they stop and they think, I've done my job. Wrong. You're just cutting yourself off from blessing. You're cutting yourself off from being more rich toward God. Don't ever think the tithe is where you stop. Really, the tithe is more, more likely the place to start. And a tithe, if you don't know what that means, it just means the first 10% of all that the Lord has given you. I love how the message talks about this verse here. Uh, listen, to, well, let me go ahead and read, read verse 7 and 8. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. God doesn't want you to do it under compulsion. For God loves what? A cheerful giver. Actually, the Greek is hilarious. How many of you are hilarious when you put money in the, in the baskets? <laughs> do we have any hilarious givers in here? I think we do have some. This church does have some serious givers. Praise God. And you know, it's not about money. It's about I see how they love God. And that's what a pastor wants to see. How the people love God. That's it. And that they're becoming rich toward God through their finances. And that they believe His Word and they're acting on it. It's faith. It's faith. It's awesome. I love how the message talks about this verse here. It says, you know, if you're going to be a stingy planter, you're going to get a stingy crop. I mean, that's pretty vivid, right? Listen to verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having 
all sufficiency in everything. You may have an abundance for every good deed. What's he saying there? He says, you can't outgive me. Man, you start trying to outgive me and I'll just keep pouring it in. You can't outgive me. You'll always have enough for yourself, your family, and to continue to give. God says, my children don't hoard up. They give. Because they're like me. They're like me in this, the Lord says. They give. They, we are to be, as to, to borrow a phrase that I've used frequently a lot, they are to be glad, reckless, joy givers. We are to be fully persuaded givers. I'm just going to summarize real quick. I'm just going to go down here really, really fast. Uh, Exodus 35. Friends, this is what Christian giving is supposed to look like. Uh, Exodus 35, verse 21. It says, everyone whose heart was stirred and everyone uh, whose spirit was moved brought a contribution. Verse 22, their hearts were moved and they brought an offering to the Lord. Verse 29, their hearts were moved and they brought a free will offering to the Lord. Uh, chapter 36, verse 2, uh, their hearts were stirred and uh, they came to do the work. Uh, chapter 36, verse 3, uh, they brought in the free will offering. And finally, you know the story. Moses had to tell the people to stop bringing stuff in because they brought too much. I'm supposed to stand up here as your pastor and say, listen, we got too much money. Don't bring any more money. We got plenty of money for that building we want to get. So don't bring any more money. You know, give it to other places. That's really what it's supposed to look like. It's about a stirred heart, friends. It's about a born again. I've seen Jesus. I cannot not give to him. It's, that's what it is. It's not law. It's not law. It's never been law in the New Testament. It's I love this God and I'm going to honor him in my finances. I'm going to honor him like that in a radical way. My heart is stirred and I cannot not do it. I cannot not do it. It reminds me of that woman. Um, you know, George Mueller, you guys know the story. If you don't, come get the book and read it. But uh, Mueller ran these orphan houses and there was a seamstress uh, in his congregation that knew him. She earned the equivalent of 40 cents a week. Of course, this was back in the 19th century. But she received a 100-pound inheritance from her father, which was five years' wages for her. It was five years' wages. Guess what she did with it? Very imprudent. In the eyes of the world, she gave it to Mueller. She was old and sick and weak and feeble. She was making 40 cents a week. She gave the 100 pounds to Mueller. Mueller wouldn't take it. Mueller gave it back to her twice. He gave it back to her twice. And she got a little bit hot. Listen to what she says. I have weighed it well, she says. I have weighed it well. The Lord Jesus freely shed His blood for me, a poor lost sinner. And shall I not in return show my love and my gratitude to Him by giving Him this little sum? Rather that this orphan house should fail, I would give everything I have. That's a stirred heart. That's New Testament giving. That's New Testament giving. She could not be... Restrained. You know, one of the joys of uh, for me and as a pastor, you know, we don't pass the offering plate. There's nothing wrong with that. Most churches do. That's cool. I don't have a problem with it. We don't do it. Uh, 
Sometimes I think we should because it gives you an opportunity maybe to have that, that moment of worship. But, you, but what, I love about, what I love about not passing the plate is sometimes people will come to me and say, well, Jim, how do I give? You know, here's the deal. If the plate doesn't come to the giver, guess what's going to happen? The giver's going to come to the plate. The giver's going to figure out how to give. And I see this over. I've been, here, I've been doing this six years. I see it over and over and over. Givers will figure out how to give. They'll come to you and say, how can I give? How do I do it? And I love that. I love that. If a man wants to give, he'll figure out a way to do it. Another quick story. This John Piper tells this story. It's a, a true story. In a Haitian church, there was, they were having some kind of campaign or something. and <clears throat> There was a man in that church. His name was Edmund, and, and uh, he, was, he was poor. But they found an offering from Edmund for 13 U.S. dollars. 13 U.S. dollars. That's the equivalent, that was the equivalent of three months' wages. Okay? Think about it. Three months' wages. 13 U.S. dollars. And the missionary was looking for Edmund. Edmund was nowhere to be found. The envelope was just in the plate, right? And he couldn't find Edmund. So later that week, he, he tracked Edmund down in the village, right? And he said, hey, man, that was awesome. What? He said, how did you do that? How did you give so sacrificially? He goes, I sold my horse. I sold my horse. Here's a man whose heart is stirred. And you can't keep him from giving to God. You can't keep him from doing it. And the missionary said, well, why didn't you stay for, for the, the fellowship time? He said, I didn't have a proper shirt. I don't know about you, but that convicts me. I think that woman that throws in her last penny has got a ton to teach me, and maybe you, about stewardship and giving. I think that seamstress that made 40 cents a week has a lot to teach me, and maybe you, about giving open-handedly to the Lord. And I, I know Edmund has a lot to teach me, and maybe you, about giving. You know, as a pastor, I've seen, you see a lot of things as a pastor, and, and I'm going to shut up in a few minutes. Uh, but, uh, you know, we had, a, we had a husband and wife, young family come through the church a couple years ago. And they were a great family. I loved them. I mean, I, I just did. They were great. They were, they, came all, they were here almost all the time. But as far as I know, they never brought an offering to God in this place. And, you know, again, it's not about the cash flow of the church. What it is... It's, it, it just betrays a poverty of heart and spirit that they did not really know Him at all. You cannot know Him and not bring an offering to Him, friends. That's just the truth. Unless you're just a very, very immature uh, Christian. You have to know what God has called us to do to be extravagant givers because that's what He is. And He's called us to this. He's called us to this. That was a troubling thing. It was a troubling thing for me. I, I made a commitment to, to this church uh, when I first started six years ago. All four of them had four people in the congregation. I made a promise to them I'd never ask for money. And I've never asked for money. I never will ask for money. That's unseemly, I think, for a pastor to ask for money. But I will not shirk my pastoral responsibility to challenge you to do what God says. He expects His people to be rich in eternal things. He expects His people to honor Him in their finances. And here's the deal. 
If we're really seeing Him, we will be like that. We'll be more like that. Let me say it this way. We'll be more like that woman in Mark chapter 12. We'll be more like Mueller's seamstress. We'll be more like Edmund. You know, I, I told him six years ago, I said, you know, I'm just going to hold Jesus up and show you how awesome He is. And then I'm going to dare you not to bring an offering to Him. Beloved, He is worthy. He's infinitely worthy. He's infinitely worthy of an offering. I said, I told him if I did my job, if I got him up, uh, preached him as big as I could and as beautiful as he is and as stunning as he is and magnificent as he is and breathtaking as he is, if I did that, if I could even get close to that, this church would never have a problem with money because his people would be worshiping him. Amen? That's, my, that's, that's our fundraising uh, strategy in this church. Look at Jesus and be in awe. And I dare you not to bring an offering to Him. I dare you. You can't. If you know Him, you can't. You cannot not bring an offering to the Lord. So if we learn the Lord correctly, we will be bringing that offering in. So here's... Here's the, the convicting part, maybe. Maybe some of, it ha- some of the rest of it has been convicting as, uh, as well. But I want to say, if you're, if you're miserly with God, if you're miserly with God, what I want to say to you is that's a grievous sin uh, of your heart. And I'm going to challenge you to repent. Don't be miserly with God. You, you know, God doesn't lose, you lose. But it's a sin against Him. If you're miserly with Him. So I'm going to challenge you to repent. Listen, friends, if you're miserly with God... It's idolatry. It's either a treasure issue or a trust issue. Either you love money more than Him, which is idolatry, or you trust money more than Him, which is simply idolatry stated a different way. Say, Jim, you're being hard on us. I know. That's my job. That's why I get the big money. Okay? That's why they pay me tons and tons of money. Listen, friends, I love you. And I preach hard because I love you. I want you to take stock of where you are with God. You know, two years ago I challenged the church, and I'll I'll be done after this, I'm pretty sure. Um, I challenged the church two years ago. Because when I was studying about this thing, the Lord came to me and He asked me this question, Jim, why don't you give more? You know what? There's only two answers to that question. Two legitimate answers to that question. Now, we can make a lot of excuses. There are really two legitimate answers to that question. One, The first one is, I can't give any more. I've already given all I can. Okay, I suspect most of us are not at that end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is, I don't give any more because I don't want to. That's why I don't want to. And I realize that I'm down, more down here than I am over here. And I didn't like the way it smelled, actually smelt. I didn't like the way I felt about it. But friends, that's the bottom line. When God comes to you and says, why aren't you giving more? There's only two answers. That's it. There's only two answers. I want to exhort you in 2010. Honor God in your finances. Be rich toward God. C.S. Lewis said, if you're doing your sums wrong, you're going to get the wrong answer. If you figured out you've done them wrong, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to stop and start over and do them right. 
That's my challenge to you in 2010. Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. That is the word of God. Let's pray together. Awesome, Lord, we thank you for this challenge. We thank you that you're always calling us out of the world, always calling us out of the world. You never stop calling us out of the world. You're calling us out of those presuppositions and the, and, and, and the places where we conform with the wisdom of the world, which is insanity with respect to eternity. Lord, you've called us to be rich in the things that matter in the kingdom of God. Lord, I pray that each one of us in here will have heard what you've said. We'll take it to heart. And we'll make it our purpose in 2010 to be rich in the things of God. We'll stop worrying about everything and we'll trust Jehovah Jireh. The God who says, I'll see to it. The God who says, uh, I'll provide. Lord, I pray you'll give us the faith to trust, to step out in an extravagant way, a radical way. Lord, to honor you, to lay up treasures in heaven, to sow bountifully for a bountiful return. That we would do it cheerfully, not under compulsion, but free will. We would be stirred. We would be so in love with Jesus, our Redeemer, that we would not be able to not bring an offering to Him. Lord, I pray You'd give us that heart and that desire to honor You in that way. In Christ's name, Amen. We are going to... Uh...